I think I was accessing a part of my memory bank growing up in the San Fernando Valley where with a little bit of distance and maybe some years under your belt, you look back at certain things that happened and you cannot believe that you lived through them. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Director's Guild of America. In today's episode, a couple of youngsters attempt to navigate the treacherous waters of first love in director Paul Thomas Anderson's coming-of-age comedic drama, Licorice Pizza. Set in the early 1970s, the film follows Gary, a 15-year-old aspiring entrepreneur who falls in love with Alana, a 25-year-old yearbook photographer's assistant as they embark on a most unlikely romance in California's San Fernando Valley. In addition to Licorice Pizza, Mr. Anderson's directorial credits include the feature films Phantom Thread, Inherent Vice, The Master, Boogie Nights, and the DGA Award-nominated There Will Be Blood. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Anderson shares insight into the making of Licorice Pizza with fellow director Jeremy Kagan, Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you. What a pleasure, what a pleasure. Actually, the first question I have for you is the pants, the white pants. Tell me how the white pants emerged. That's a good question. Well, you know what costume fittings are like. You try on jeans and you say, okay, those are good. And then something happens when an actor puts a certain thing on and you, you, you just know the costume fitting's over. It's like, that's it. And Cooper um, has never acted before. And I think that he had never been in a costume fitting before. So you hope that what you see that's, that visually looks right is also right for the character and is also comfortable for him. So all three things happened. And it was probably most important with an, a young actor who's never acted before that his comfort probably made it very visually appealing to me instantly because you could see him try a couple things on. You go, okay, okay. But for for him to put something on, for any teenager, I suppose, particularly a teenager who's never been in a film before, wearing period costumes, they're, they're going to kind of go through an adjustment period. And when he put this stuff on, it felt good. So you just seize that moment and you don't look back. And then you kind of try to get it over with and just get, get on Did to the next Did you also thing. know that your, the last sequence was going to be top and bottom white? I mean, was this something in your mind when you're writing or is this also evolved? That was something that was in my mind, um, that he should have something kind of very bright and colorful there. And Mark Bridges suggested white. Um, Mark Bridges also seizing upon the knowledge that a redhead would look particularly good in white <laughs> and a pink shirt. You, you know the Chaim family. In fact, we're all going to dinner Friday night there for yeah. Shabbos, which I'm really pleased about. But, but, but you didn't know his capacities. What was the casting process in terms of you're actually meeting him? At, you know, I know you knew him. With Alana. The, are you talking no, about? No, no, not with, with Alana with, because with Alana you'd worked with before, music right. videos, you knew the family. But as you said, this is the first thing he'd ever did. And you, you did go through an audition process with him. What was it? What did you have him do? Well, we had, I, had, I had gone through a traditional uh, casting process looking for a young actor with Alana. And she was with you in and, the uh, casting sessions? Yes, she was with me in the casting sessions um, because she had already had the part. I wrote the part for her. This is her first film. And then 
I think, well, we've got to find somebody to play opposite you. And we did the traditional casting and there were some very good young actors, but you know, it just wasn't that thing, that thing that you're hoping for. Um, Cooper, I have known since he was born. I have pictures holding him when he was about three or four days old. Um, he was about this big. Can't pick him up anymore. But um, And it occurred to me that he shared a lot with the character. He's incredibly social. He's incredibly funny. He's incredibly charismatic. But more importantly, he's very empathetic. Um, he's, a, he's a wonderful listener. Um, for as much as he, he talks and yaps as a teenager, he's, he's actually a very, very good listener. He was always the kid through his whole life. He was always the kid that wanted to be at the adult's table. You know, if we like, don't have enough room in the kid's table and the adult's table, he was always saddling, saddling up at the adult's table. So I asked him if he would be interested in reading this. I actually kind of lied to him. I said, would you be interested in reading this screenplay that I wrote? And he saw right through it. He started to put the pieces together like, he's okay. And, and I said, oh, I'm coming to New York with Alana. Maybe we could read this. And they read it together, just reading it, you know, not acting, just reading. So let me stop there for a second. Did they read specific scenes? And do you remember which ones they read? We read the whole script. The whole script? Yeah. I said, just start at the beginning. I mean, the beginning is the two of them talking, and they're in pretty much every scene. We skipped over some stuff just to keep it moving and not get bogged down. But the uncomfortableness in a good way, the kind of genuineness that they, the excitement that they felt together in the same room. I mean, it wasn't great. It wasn't even acting. It was just reading it. But it was quite clear to me quite quickly that this held a lot of promise. So we did it again the next day. And then we walked around the street. I said, forget about the script. And we forgot about the script. And we just walked around the streets. And they said, if you do remember any of the dialogue, say it to each other. And then that led to improvising. And that really revealed itself as their, their natural chemistry together was quite strong. Um, and, and when the, you would set up an improv with the two of them on the street, what would maybe the setup be? Now, they've already had the experience of reading a number of times, so they have an idea of what the story is. But what would you set up if you wanted them to then show you? Anything with any kind of tension, anything with any kind of dramatic tension. Generally, it was um, there were conversations about you know, uh, showing the boobs, right? All this sort of stuff when they're driving in the car. All right, just take that out of the car and just walk down the street and argue it, or argue about it, this kind of stuff. Anything that had some spice to it was, was fun to do. And that revealed itself to be really successful. And it was like think, the thinking that it gave her some, some, some wings and it gave him um, some confidence and you, then you figure, well, okay, the words can come later. The essence of, of, of their dynamic is, is invaluable. Now, you know the experience of a person who's never acted before meeting them in a situation, but then putting them on a set with a whole bunch of people and that right. sometimes can freeze them up. What was giving you the confidence that that wasn't going to happen? Oh, I didn't have any confidence that that wasn't going to happen. I cr created a situation at a coffee shop near in Woodland Hills, not far from where I live, where rather than shut the whole coffee shop down, we, we let the coffee shop, we just sort of took over a booth and had maybe one light and one camera and just kept it very simple. So the, the coffee shop continued to, to work and breathe. And this became hopefully like a, a toe in the water. Like there's a camera there and there's a light there, but real life is going on and the sound doesn't matter. And let's just sort of act. And that was incredibly successful incredibly successful. Um, 
actually it wasn't at first. I remember saying action the very first time and he completely forgot his every single one of his lines just went right out of his head, just like absolutely frozen, which is really endearing. Um, Where did you go with that second? I just started laughing. I said, well, all right, you got that out of the way. Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> and he, you know, most of the crew he knew anyway, because they're friends of mine and we've all worked together for many years. So it wasn't as if he was walking into an entirely foreign situation. Um, and there was, it was meant to be a no pressure situation. And eventually uh, we shot for about three hours and then maybe we walked around an, an alleyway. Um, it was, it was very, very successful. And, and how um, long before the actual shoot did this? That happen? was in November of 2019. November of 2019, and we were meant to start shooting in Mar and in May of 2020. Talk about one of the things that is amazing is what isn't said between the two of them. There are a number of scenes, sometimes when they're separate, like the phone call scene early yeah. on. Uh, where And I'm interested in whether they got to hear each other on the other side or even just the breathing on the other side of the line. But there are other moments when they're together. And they literally, the, what isn't said is so powerful. And for people who are not that experienced to stay in the moment, talk about it. Well, I've always, I think ever since... There, I can remember being a young writer and thinking that everything I wrote was so wonderful and so important. But there's a certain point when you realize the most exciting scenes are when people aren't talking. I mean, I think the irony is is that most actors love it. You know, there used to be this sort of this kind of false idea that actors just want to see how many lines they have. You know, the actors that I've worked with who are, who are excellent, from Joaquin to Daniel, they always get the most excited when there's nothing to say. There's something about it. There's something so elemental about it. They get to just, it's not about the words. Something, something's happening in the scene that they can play that's very clear. And I love those scenes. More to the point, you know, there's a scene that, that when they're running away from, from the, when after he gets arrested, that used to be about a three-page dialogue scene. That they're, As they're running, they have this whole conversation. And the writing was okay, and the acting was good, but it was clearly not what you wanted to do is stop and have a conversation at that time. And I remember just in the bag of tricks that you accumulate over the years, you say like, just do the scene, but don't say any of the words, you know, in other words, it's, it's, it's make it a silent movie. And then you just emerged with this beautiful running shot where they're just, they're just enjoying each other's company. Anytime there's a chance to take dialogue out or to be simple or to be quiet, is an opportunity to seize on to me. And the question that you asked about the telephone call is that that was initially played silently. Um, and I, uh, Alana was in the house where we were shooting down the hall on a telephone. <clears throat> but I said, well, wouldn't it, this is sort of those, one of those director tricks. I said, well, what if you just said some really nasty and filthy things on the other end of the phone and I can take them out just to see if we can get a reaction from him. I gave her some dirty, filthy, nasty things to say. And uh, it worked. It worked. He started, he, Cooper has one of those faces that redheads usually have where they blush quite easily. Um, and he started blushing. You can see it in the film. His cheeks just grew bright red. I don't really condone that kind of directing. I don't, I'm not saying that that's something that you should do to anybody that's in this room. And trickery is not encouraged. But from time to time, it's fun, you know, and especially to do to like a 16-year-old who's never been in a movie before, you know. <laughs> the moments, again, I want to pursue this for another time, 
when they actually are looking at each other, where they're not saying anything, is there anything you are saying to them so that they can literally focus? Um, from time to time, yeah. I can remember, listen, on the telephone, I can remember saying to Alana, just try to communicate to him through the telephone. Just try to communicate. Just send him a message telepathically. I can remember saying that to her. Again, anytime there is, the writer has written four or five annoying lines that are probably on the nose, so she knows them already. There's just this wonderful release when you say, don't say those dumb lines. You have a face. Use it. You know, it's like, and they, they, they like it. You know, actors would much rather use that thing that they have in their body language, their eyes, their, their cheeks, whatever it is to do it rather than say some goofy line that the writer has. Written. They'll also though know what it is that their intention is. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why to, for them to stay in that, I'm wondering whether you would be reminding them what you're doing. You're staring him down. You're communicating to him. You're warning her or whatever. Absolutely. You know, sometimes I'll write things and I'll put them in parentheses in the script, you know, and, and that's usually an indication of, I, I don't think this is a great line, but it might be helpful for you when we get there when we th- to throw this away. But here's an indication of what you might be thinking. And most of the times, you know, when you get deeper and deeper into a film and they get used to this kind of idea of silent acting and using their face, they, they are, are taking that ball and they're running with it. You don't even have to be – you don't even have to remind them. They've been encouraged enough to know that that, is, that can be a very successful form of communication and will be the thing that helps you in the editing room when you get there and you just go, God, wouldn't it be great to have dot, dot, dot? And, and, you, and you have it, you know? I mean, so much of when you get in the editing room is, God, I wish I could just see how somebody's reacting to something. Yeah. In terms of reveal and reactions, there are a number of moments that there are fabulous reveals, like the cops suddenly just jumping out of nowhere. Sure. Um, now, obviously, that's in the script. You've written this. But how that's going to, in fact, proceed? Do you remember staging it and how he responds to it? I do remember that. That is an episode that is based on fact. A friend of mine, Gary Getzman, who some of you might know, who many of these episodes are based on, worked at a thing called the Teenage Fair where he sold waterbeds. And this is the kind of way the story went. He said, did I ever tell you about the time I was arrested for murder? You know, this kind of thing. No, you didn't. Let me hear about that. And we initially, I initially wrote the sequence in much more of a Hitchcock kind of way. In other words, they got to the Teenage Fair. They set up the waterbed. They forgot a hose. Oh, sh-. so he walks down an alley. He takes this circuitous route to a hardware store, gets a hose, comes back, fills the whole thing with water, and then set that to the side. So that was stretched out to give the audience the indication that something's going on here because for some reason time is expanding in a way that seems peculiar. And that was the idea initially with the way that that scene was going to go. And then there would be this rush of the police coming in. So in seeing the film all the way through, it's not time for a Hitchcock scene. It's time to continue the story on. It's time to get, you want to get to her. You want to get back to her. So um, something that was this kind of surprise, which was always going to be a version of a surprise. I think we were just going to kind of tip our hat that was something was coming, was eliminated. And the surprise of it gets, um, gets enforced. It, get, it, it lifts up. 
but that was yeah that was that was based on on fact you know and what did you tell gary was going to happen at this moment was there i mean there's physicality here so was there a kind of rehearsal of this there 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 was because it was physically going to be aggressive and um and I, he, he, you know, he, he was incredibly, he's incredibly physical. He's a big boy and he's a great athlete. And, um, he did a great job of not anticipating knowing that these guys were going to come, come from behind him. And he did it take after take. And then he would become aware. He said, I anticipated that, didn't I? I kind of flinched a little bit. I say, yeah, you know, and we, we got a couple that were really, really strong. You have to, when you get into physical scenes like that, as you know, you really have to plan them out. You can't. Those, those you can't wing. Yeah. You don't want to mess with it. Uh, let's talk about the slap. Um, how many takes was that? Well, that's a diff- that's different, actually. Again, this is, this is really horrible. Um, I didn't tell him that she was going to slap him. <clears throat> even worse. There's worse. <laughs> <laughs> even worse than that. Uh, we did it the first time, and it was terrific. And then we did it again, and he seemed to sort of anticipate that it was coming. And I... I I'm not going to admit this, but we'll just keep it between us. Is that I said, you know, this is giving me the idea that, you know, we, I think that there should be like a kiss here. I think that maybe, you know, maybe this should be a more romantic moment. That maybe you should ask uh, if you can touch her boobs and she'll say yes. And that you should lean in for a kiss. I think that, I think that's a better way to do this. And he said, okay, that's a great idea. <laughs> and of course, I told Alana, I said, wind up and get him this time, you know? And so that's the one that's in the movie. Um, <laughs> that is horrible. I would never do that to an actor. I would only do that to a boy that I've known since he was three days old, you know? It, it was all in fun. So, there, so with, <laughs> with Sean Penn, you didn't have to worry about the motorcycle ride? <laughs> no, with Sean, Sean on a motorcycle, I feel completely safe. You know? Did he? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, if it's Sean Penn, you know, come on. He's not gonna he's not you know, he knows his way around a motorcycle. I mean that was like, you know What he, was Tom Waits basing this on some director that you knew? He, no, Tom Waits is a is an amalgam of of all the directors that we love that fit that bill, whether it's John Ford or Raoul Walsh. You know, his look is is William Clothier, the the great cinematographer who worked with John Ford, who did a lot of his color films. He had, would always wear that hat, a blazer. He'd have the, the, the you know, whatever they call that eye thing to look at the clouds. He always had that there. Um, terrific look. And you know, there's a little bit of Sam Peckinpah in there, even though Sam Peckinpah was more of a wild man. There's a little bit of you know, you imagine that William Holden probably had a relationship with these guys, these sort of hard drinking guys. But if you do the age, and I talked about this with with Tom and Sean, is that you have to imagine that Tom's character would have been in in silent film, right? If you kind of do the mathematics of it, is that William Holden, you know, Sean's playing a stand-in for William Holden probably emerged in the 40s sometime. And a lot of those directors that he was initially working with had started in silent films. So um, I don't know if anybody's seen the great Kevin Brownlow documentary, Hollywood, the eight-part series that he did in the 80s. And you have a lot. And what was amazing about that was that you had a lot of the people were still alive, you know. So you have these interviews with them sitting in their homes, whether it's Beverly Hills or an apartment in Van Nuys, and they're talking about the beginnings of our business. And one of the things was part of that process for directors was they would talk during takes. That's right. Constantly. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. 
No. Um, I think I laugh during takes more than I talk. Sometimes I'll talk, you know, to give, give, I like to keep rolling. That's what I, I know. I hate cutting. I like to just go back to the beginning. As you know, you know, sometimes there can be, it can take, it can take the wind out of the sails. Stopping and starting and stopping and starting, really just to do a series is always a terrific way to work. But here you decided to go back to a strange phrase, 35 millimeter, not shooting digital, where obviously, quote, not stopping and starting is not an issue. What was your decision that you decided that you wanted to shoot 35 millimeter? Well, I've never really stopped. It's kind of what I learned. What I learned on was that, and I think I probably have an aversion to trying to learn something new at this point. Um, I love the way that it looks. I love the. And it's, but speaking of of this, you know, to do a series, you know that it's only going to last ten minutes, right? I, I I hear from a lot of actors who are endlessly frustrated by shooting digitally because it can go on more than ten minutes, which I think is too long. You know, they can get tired out. They can feel that there isn't a natural break, um, a natural break of about 10 minutes, less even of doing something is good. You, you can just, you can kind of get tired. It's a balance between stopping and starting and not getting a rhythm and then knowing where a natural finish is to, to doing a scene that, that gives everybody a break for a second. You know, this is a, this is an important balance to achieve now, on the set. There's a credit here that reads you as uh, one of the cinematographers. Talk about that. Well, it's something that I started doing with Michael Bauman, who's a gaffer that I've worked with for many years. And when we were doing these smaller projects, usually the Heim videos and the things that I've done for Radiohead, the different side projects, I would just sort of do them myself with him. And it was an incredibly wonderful way to work. We had a great collaboration and we did it on Phantom Thread. And it was incredibly successful, just the kind of idea of the photography of the film essentially becoming a five-headed monster between the key grip, the gaffer, which would, and Michael Bauman, the camera operator, and Eric Brown, the, the first assistant, that that becomes – is that five? Anyway, um, it's, sort of, it's sort of all of us uh, as a team rather than delegating the, the duty to one person. I mean, if it had been up to me, I mean, I respect Local 600 Wishes – that we get credited for a cinematographer. But if it was up to me, I, I would probably just give all of us the credit. Where are you in this process, though? Are you talking lighting here for you? Or are you actually behind the lens? No, I work with a great camera operator named Colin Anderson. And I, I, I can do the most rudimentary camera operating, but he's the best in the world. So I leave it to the experts. Um, the, the, the planning of the shots and, and, and the lighting and exposure, film stock, all that kind of stuff is, is me, is me and Bauman. That's what we, that's the job that we divvy up. So a sequence, for example, when the, they're go, leaving the office and all, it's all dark except for that yellow wall that's yes. outside. Talk about how that would evolve in this process. Oh, that's a that's a good one. I'll I'll say to Michael, um, you know, I'll sort of map it out with the actors initially, sort of get a basic staging and blocking. It's always lovely when you work in big spaces like that, isn't it? I mean, I like working in small spaces too, but boy, it's great to kind of get back and see the landscape of, of where they are. And that's a particular situation where the staging really fell into place that it could be played in, in, in essentially in one shot. And I saw the wall back there and I said, well, let's put some light on that. And let's have them silhouette. And so Mike put some light on it. And I said, no, 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 let's, let's put some light on it. And so he would just start inching it up because he was so opposed to the idea that the wall would be that bright. And um, that's a kind of classic example of the collaboration is that I would have to justify to him why I wanted the wall so bright. 
And still to this day, it's something that he thinks the wall is too bright. And we, 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 we argue about it. And, um, and it's, it's, that's just the nature of our collaboration. There's staging of certain shots where you will track with a character. Sometimes they're going to be on the other side of the whatever that window is, for example, when she comes into the restaurant near yes. the end of it. But there's also a couple, I think even when she goes to the Wax's uh, um, space yeah. at the first time. These feel like they may evolve because I know you write in detail yeah. how you want to shoot. I'm interested when does it suddenly become more, okay, I'm seeing this now on this set and we're evolving as a single I've already written it. Some of the things are written. Those are two examples of something that, 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 that are not written. That's probably written as Alana arrives at Joel Wack's office, something quite simple like that. Those are things that emerge from the location scouts. I think I we our location scouts are endless. Um, not endless; they're quick, but there's many of them. Um, and I, ch- I try to do I try to do as many as I can without a million people around. You know, because that I think it's it's incredibly efficient to go to a location, whether it's by myself or with Michael or with Flo, the production designer, and just have them play the characters. And you, you can get a hundred different shots out of the way before you find the right one. Or sometimes you're lucky enough, you find it very quickly and you come back a couple days later, see it again, and then you're ready to bring, bring everybody and show them what it is. Now what this doesn't, and this doesn't factor in is the actors. Um, but I tend to go to the locations with the actors, you know, beforehand, months beforehand, and just sort of have them in the space, see what it looks like, have them play it out. So that to a certain extent, the, the discovery of the scene is a little bit less in the blocking on the day and a little bit more in the playing of it. The sort of basic parameters are set so we all know where to aim when we get to work that day. So it's just more efficient. Bradley Cooper at the gas station. Uh, can you tell us how that one evolved? Yeah. Um, Bradley Cooper at the gas station was, was a, an, a, a shot that I had figured out quite early on. Um, even before him, you just, it was a great location at the corner of Balboa and Ventura Boulevard. And what, the problem with that shot was that it revealed itself to be a very large scale shot for our budget. In other words, you're going to take over 76 station. You're going to have to replace the pumps. You're going to have to place the signage and you're going to have to bring when looking at it through your phone, you kind of are counting how many spaces you have to fill and you kind of get up to about, you got 40 or 50 period cars that you're going to have to do. So it was one of those shots that you earmark as an ideal situation. And then as you get through the whole rest of the film, you say, where are we on the money? Can we afford to do this? And how do we protect this? Because I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a shot worth protecting. Let's do something cheap over here. Let's steal from this and let's ensure that we do this shot. That's how that happened. So that was like lingering there as this hanging chad, like, can we get it? But his performance, add a little bit to it. Oh, he's dynamite. He's dynamite. He's what? But he picks up the thing like a weapon. And uh, how did that evolve as well? Working with Bradley is a joy. And I mean, what you also realize is that you're working with another director too, which is fantastic. You know, he has a director's mind and he's brilliant filmmaker, brilliant person to work with. I mean, really one of my favorite people I've worked with. Um, Incredibly collaborative, incredibly inventive, but not endlessly so. He knows where a good idea is and grabs onto it and is not going to, you know, spend time doing 50 of them. It's like one five will do, you know. He, um, we shot his whole sequence in about, I think, six days. 
So all that stuff, driving around was one night, stuff at the house was another day, stuff out at the gas station. And where did you come up with the idea of holding this um, gas nozzle and the lighter? I don't remember. I thought, I think, you know, you just... I think you just walked in the shoes of the character. You think, well, guy's got to get gas. What's he going to do? Well, he's not going to wait in line. He's going to go right to the front of the line. Well, how's he going to threaten him? He's got gas right there. He's got to, let, let's put a lighter in his pocket. He's basically, I'm going to light you on fire unless you don't give me this nozzle. You know, I think you just, you just, you, you, you come up working with somebody like that. The collaboration usually happens very quickly at its best. You, you're walking it together. You kind of know the base. You, you've, you're guiding them in a direction, but you're hoping that they will then emerge with all these little details. Um, Let's talk about that truck. Where yeah. did that truck come from? <laughs> well, the truck is back to Gary Getzman for a second, who had a waterbed company, and the, the the impetus for this story was that a lot of episodes that he told me about his life. He was a child actor. Uh, he, he needed to go to New York to do the Ed Sullivan show to promote yours, mine, ours, Lucille Ball. And he, his mother couldn't go cause she was working. And so he hired a burlesque dancer named Kiki Page to be his chaperone. It was a burlesque dancer who lived in Sherman Oaks. Uh, and so she, Kiki Page took him. And I remember hearing that story going, that's pretty good. I'm chaperone. That's a good idea. Anyway, his buddies told me, so they said, well, yeah, when we had the waterbed store, John Peters, we, we de- delivered a waterbed to John Peters. And I was like, what happened thinking, you know, something horrible must have happened. And they said nothing. He was a great guy. He was dating Barbara at the time and he, we came in. So I invented this dramatic situation to make it far more interesting, you know, um, than just, he was a nice guy. And I, I think I was accessing a part of my memory bank growing up in the San Fernando Valley where, with a little bit of distance and maybe some years under your belt, you look back at certain things that happened and you cannot believe that you lived through them, you know, and, and generally they involved a car, right? So something really dangerous that happened with a car. And at the time you think they're hilarious and so exhilarating and exciting. And then, you know, like as a 50 year old, you're like, you could have died and you didn't, it didn't never occurred to you that you could have died. You just thought you were, you know, in a movie or something. So that's kind of a, the truck thing is like a catch all. It's kind of like a deposit for every insane, horrible, ridiculous thing you ever did in your youth that involved a car. And any of us here who live in the city have run out of gas. And that's a, such that, a specific know. truck though. Well that, yes, that is a great truck. Well, that was talk about auditioning. Once I saw that truck, it was like, that's the truck. That's, that's a good truck. They're so scary. They're, they're big and they're so, um, they're so threatening. Performance. Um, Harriet Harris. Yes. Harriet Sansom Harris, who plays Mary Day, the talent agent. Yeah. That is one of the, I would, (laughs) I, I find that so arresting. It's like, it just glistens. How did she get there? What happened? Well, I worked with her before in Phantom Thread. She plays Barbara Rose. I don't know if anybody's seen that movie. She's the rich American heiress, and they'd steal the dress off of her. So she was always in my mind as one of the most incredible actresses I'd ever worked with. She works mainly on the stage in New York. And if there was one person I was going to call in the middle of a pandemic and beg them to come on an airplane and risk their life, it would be her. You know, And so she came out, and... 
we shot the scene in an afternoon. It was like a professional at work. It was like what, what it means to work with an incredible professional actor who knows everything that they're going to do beforehand and then keeps discovering more. What they came in with was already good enough, but as the scene progresses, everything they keep discovering just keeps getting better and better and better. And I am a... Um, You'd written this scene and that dialogue. There's a transition she makes when she goes and says, you're a... Well, never leave, she says the yes, dog. You're a fighter, yeah. What did you see when you... I saw it in front of my face. Like, I knew the scene was well-written, but I didn't see that. I mean, you know, she just... She's one of those people that kind of makes everything come off of the page. Like, a scene that's good becomes great. She's one of those... And she met, brings out that part of me as a director where she'll, 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 she'll sort of stop herself and go, is it too big? And I'm like, no, bigger. You know, like I just – I have a weakness for, for large-scale performances from time to time. I'm like I, 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 will, I will start laughing. I will start laughing so much that I'm crying and I will encourage the worst kind of behavior. And I like, like just like said go. Do like, those scenes end up in your movie? yes. Yes, always. They do. For you, what were some of the most difficult scenes for you as a director in this film? Um, well, that was a good one. <laughs> you know what I'm reminded of? You know, do you remember that great moment in um, uh, broadcast news where um, William Hurt says to James Brooks, he says, uh, what, what happens when all your uh, – what do you do when all your dreams come true? And Albert Brooks says, you keep it to yourself. <laughs> it made me think of that because it made me think there was nothing hard. This film was a complete joy to make. Every day was a joy. And I think in some ways you, you don't want to tell anybody about this great time that you had. And no one wants to hear it, you know, like, I don't want to hear about how great a time you had, but every day was a joy, even when it was challenging to, to help and not that it was challenging, but keeping these two young performers to keep their focus, which again was never really a challenge because they were always so ready. Um, was the I can't think of was anything. the realities of COVID part of the yeah? But you know, we meant to, we chose to be there, and there's it was we were early out of the gate shooting in COVID, so. At its worst, you kind of went, oh, I got a mask on for 10 hours. Well, get you, you know, get on with it. You know, it was like, it, it was, you know, it, it, we were so thrilled to be together again. I mean, and it was, you know, to have a common purpose um, after being so rudderless for so many months that there was nothing to complain about. It was all joy. The music is such a you know, powerful part of many of your movies, and obviously this is music from a certain time yeah. as well. When did certain songs evolve for you in the process? Well, most of that comes when I'm writing. I uh, try to make those decisions early. At least the key, the key components, you know, the, when, when a song is used to, to maximum effect, whether it's David Bowie or Paul McCartney, these are sort of big moments in the story starting with Nina Simone, starting with the July tree, I think you, you, you stake out the large moments where you're going to have maximum effect in the writing and you kind of know how to move the camera, how to stage a scene. You, you can play it for the actors. You know, this is what's going on here. You know, if there's nothing said, they have it in their bodies and they can feel that rhythm. That's very helpful. And then the fun becomes in the editing room, all the tiny little things that, that, that are inconsequential, but are very fun. You know, what's playing on a radio and how can it can be counterpoint or how can it uh, help you? 
you know, this kind of thing. Are there scenes that are on the editing room floor from this movie? Yeah, there's about five or six. Not many, though. Truthfully, it's it's it takes a lot of work to make things feel like uh, they just came out by accident. <laughs> um, no, it's it's. I think there's a, a hand, small handful of them, and nothing really worth worth noting. Some scenes just became a bit shorter that are already there. Um, maybe there's just two lines, but no, the shape of it was quite clear to us. So there was not a lot of discovery in that way in the editing room. It was really just taking care of the mission, accomplishing the mission of telling the story. One more question. What's the first thing you do when you arrive on a set? What's the first thing I do when I arrive on a set? Oh, you know, I start screaming and yelling and (laughs) asserting my authority and making sure everyone is properly afraid of me and... I don't know. You know what? Usually, you know, usually the the, the best thing about showing up is is planning it the night before. I think that we always we always try to have meetings the night before, even if as tired as we are, is to get our act together the night before, so that we don't come in wandering around at the beginning of the next day. It's always an important thing, so that there's a mission to accomplish. I mean, you know the feeling of when you move to a new location, and even if you know what the plan is, it's just hard to get out of the gate. Um, it's so wonderful when you've been in some place for two or three days. Everybody's dug in and you're focused. Is there homework that you have when you get home besides that? Well, the homework is dailies. You know, we do dailies uh, each night at my house and try to review what we've shot that day. We still do dailies on film the old-fashioned way. And so it's usually about eating, having a drink, watching the dailies, reviewing, checking the performances, checking the lighting, not letting it go on too long and getting a good night's sleep. You know, it was funny because I was teaching Alana and Cooper how to get more, more than anything was teaching them how to get through 65 days of shooting and to how to conserve their energy. And what was the lesson? Um, Get some sleep, keep eating, stay focused and learn the script from the beginning to the end before we start shooting. Because they'll, if you think you're going to have time to learn a big scene the night before, you know, you're kidding yourself. And so we treated it like a play. I said, just be ready with everything when we start, because it's like skiing down a mountain. You know, you start skiing down a mountain, you're not going to like suddenly call time out. That you, the moments that you have off, you need to be resting or zoning out. Um, shooting in sequence sometimes is very effective. Sometimes you just can't. What was the story on this? We were all over the place. I mean, we started with Bradley Cooper which actually ends up being, you know, as much as you want to start to shoot in sequence, it was just, it was the, it was the schedule that we needed to do so Bradley could go back to Nightmare Alley. But it turned out to be this blessing to start with his sequence because it bonded Cooper and Alana together, surviving the the brutality of Bradley Cooper's performance, you know, just brutalizing them day after day and, um, and made them kind of come together and also saw, they saw how he handled being on a set and how he handled being in his character and how he handled treating the scenario was their first lesson in movie acting. And that was excellent. Well, listen, you give us continuous lessons in how to really direct phenomenally good films. So thank you for spending time with us. Thank and thank you, you for making this. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. 